Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, why does sucking a mint make your mouth feel cold? How does the Venus flytrap work? And is the universe in an endless spiral of creating and destroying itself? We're taking on the science questions that you have been sending in. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, let's meet the team of people who are going to answer your questions for you this week. Andrew Ponson is a show regular. He's from UCL and he's a cosmologist. That means he knows about dark matter, black holes and that sort of thing. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well. And have you got a mind-bending fact for us this week? I do. I was, I was doing a lecture recently. I did a little calculation to tell the audience, suppose you take everything that we can see throughout space, the whole observable universe, and you scale it down. You make a scale model that fits inside London pretty big city. How big do you think our solar system would be? That's the sun, the planets, you know, all the all the stuff that's sort of nearby. Oh, goodness, you're asking me that question. Well, how, how big do you think it might be? I would say the one of the panes in the glass of a window in St Paul's Cathedral, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's, that's a good guess, but actually uh, it's way off. It would be about the size of a single atom. Oh, my goodness. So that really and, is And, you know, that's small. the sun, the earth, all the planets that are nearby... So we are literally a tiny drop in a massive universe really ocean. Are, yeah. Andrew Ponson, who will be taking any question you would like to ask him about life, the universe and everything, I think. Sarah Shales is also with us. She works for the journal eLife. She's a plant scientist and she, for eLife, is a features editor. So what's one of those, Sarah? And welcome, by the way. Hi. Um, I work on the team that produces the magazine-style content for the journal. So that's kind of interviews, feature articles. Um, and we also produce plain language summaries of the research articles. So it makes the sort of findings of the research more accessible to other scientists in other fields, but also members of the public. And your scientific start in life was as a plant researcher. Yeah. And what did you look at? Uh, so I studied the friendly relationship that plants form uh, with nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the soil. Um, so members of the legume family, so that's peas and beans, for example, uh, they can form this relationship. And a lot of researchers now are trying to work out if there's ways we can move that into other plants as well. So that they, they make the soil richer because it's got more nitrogen after yeah. they've grown on it. Yeah, exactly. So anything you want to know about making your plants grow better, Sarah is the person to ask. Now, also with us is Philippe Bougeot, who is a PhD student at Cambridge University, but you're not originally from Cambridge, Philippe. I'm not. No, my accent probably gives it away. Well, a little bit, but tell us about you. Tell us. Yes, so I am French-Canadian, so I immigrated here to study decision-making and economics in the brain. You are a neuroeconomist then. Why, yes, that is apparently... why we make the decisions we do. Yeah, so that is apparently my official title. Um, yeah, so I look at decision biases and how to model neural signals using the tools of economics. 
And so what sorts of questions would you like people to ask you? I mean, the sort of questions I look at is why do we make mistakes, let's say, in financial institutions? Or why do we overrate stocks when we are investing in the future? So things like that that I tend to look at. Philippe, thank you very much. Sitting uh, to Philippe's left is Sarah Madden, another Sarah, another PhD student who's in Cambridge. And you are a biochemist. What do you do, Sarah? Hello. Um, so I am working on developing new cancer drugs. But the difference here is that lots of the cancer drugs that we already have are quite small. They're like the size of um, a drug that you get, like for example, a medicine like paracetamol. But I'm kind of working on developing a new type. And these are actually much bigger than these kind of medicines. They're about 100 times bigger. You don't mean the pill is bigger. You mean as in the, yeah, the actual true. molecule? Yeah, that's true. So is... all the, the molecule, the atoms. are. And it's... why is size important then? So I feel like we've already picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit in terms of cancer medicine. So I'm trying to target new parts of cancer. And the problems with these is that lots of the parts that we need to target are actually quite big in area, so we need bigger medicines pretty much. Well, there you go. You have Sarah Drugs and we also have a Sarah Plants here. Welcome to all of you. And uh, if the panel haven't already been put through their paces, by the time we get to it, we'll be throwing a little quiz their way, which uh, you can also try at home too. Should be fun. Right, Andrew, we're going to kick off with you. You're in the firing line, and we have this question for you from Richard. You always get the easy questions on this programme. Richard says, if we had a telescope that was powerful enough to see all of the way back to the Big Bang when the universe started, what direction should we point our telescope in to see it? Well, the great news is we pretty much do have telescopes that are powerful enough to see maybe not all the way to the Big Bang, uh, because right after the Big Bang, uh, the universe was sort of opaque. So if if you try and go too far back towards the Big Bang, uh, then you can't see any further. But just a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, the universe went transparent. And light that was around at that time has remained within the universe, been travelling ever since, remained within the universe, and we can pick it up with telescopes today. So this question of what direction should you point those telescopes in is is a very good one. And the, the answer to the actual question is any direction. Because although you might think of the universe as sort of expanding out in a, in a big bang from a from a tiny point, actually, as far as we can tell, the entire size of the universe could be infinite. So even if the universe has got an awful lot bigger since those very early days, even in the early days, it was still infinite because if you make infinite smaller it's still infinite. So so it doesn't really matter what direction you point a telescope in, you are still looking in a direction that was there during the Big Bang. Can you just elaborate a little bit on what you mentioned at the start when you said the universe was opaque and then it became transparent? What did you mean by that? Well, um, if you imagine a very foggy day, you, you can't see very far. And the physics behind that is that uh, any light that we, we call light uh, photons comes in little packets of energy called photons. And those individual photons keep bouncing around. They're essentially bouncing off water droplets in the case of a foggy day. And in the early universe, essentially, it was the equivalent of a foggy day, uh, except it wasn't water droplets. It was actually electrons, little particles called electrons that were making the light all bounce around. So for that reason, you, you couldn't sort of see any further. There was this fog that you can't see past. And why did that clear, that fog? It, it cleared because the universe as it expands cools down. And when the universe 
universe gets cold enough, there's not enough energy to keep those electrons flying around and they actually get dragged into protons and they start forming what we recognise today as atoms. And so the electrons are no longer whizzing around and no longer able to intercept the light. Thank you, Andrew. Now, back here on Earth, Sarah, we've actually got one for you, which has been sent in by Michael. Can you do genetic testing on trees to find out which individual trees are related, similar to human paternity or maternity testing? If it is possible, has this ever been used? So we can have a family tree, can we, Sarah? Um, yeah, you can actually. So like us, plants do produce children that have a mixture of genes from two parents. So in that respect, you can do maternity paternity testing. There are a few things that make that quite tricky with plants. So when we do paternity testing in humans, we generally have a, a sort of a short list of people who could possibly be the father of a child. So you're only testing a certain number of people's DNA. With plants, you can't actually talk to them. Well, you can talk to plants, but they don't Prince necessarily Charles answer back. Does. <laughs> he swears by it. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I, I used to sometimes talk to my plants when I was working with them, but they don't generally... What did you say? <laughs> I just, I'd just be, you know, looking at them, wondering why they weren't being all nice and tidy when I needed them to be generally. I worked with a plant that kind of crept all over the surfaces because it generally grows across the ground and you'd get tangled and um, you'd get a bit annoyed at them. But they don't generally answer when you ask them questions. <laughs> Funnily enough. But back to the family tree question then. So you were saying that you know humans have a limited number of potential partners to trawl through. But with trees, what are you saying? They're a bit promiscuous and they're sort of having sex in the air with so many other possible tree fathers that it's very hard to work out who the dad is. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, pollen can travel quite large distances. So if you think of trees that are pollinated by insects, so a bumblebee can travel, you know, a mile so you'd be looking at a whole bunch of trees in that in a sort of mile radius potentially of where you and the plant you're interested in. But also seeds can travel quite a long way as well because seeds can survive for a long period of time and they can travel quite big distances. So Inside birds and things because birds yeah. will fly off and then put them out somewhere else and a yeah. new, new plant will grow there. Yeah, and I mean you also get seeds being carried by the wind and, and all sorts of other ways. So you have a massive kind of pool of potential mothers and fathers to, to work from. And the other problem is as well is, is that a lot of trees produce both pollen and eggs, so they're both male and female. So even if you have narrowed it down to which plants you're looking at, you don't necessarily, it's going to potentially be hard to tell whether they're male or female. Although it's tricky to do maternity paternity testing in plants it is actually possible especially in a kind of orchard situations so if you're growing plants for breeding and you can then identify the plants that are say the top parents so they're the ones producing the best plants that you're most interested in um, and it's also being used for kind of conservation purposes with like wild tree populations because you can use it to study how pollen moves um, and disperses in a wild population. Thank you Sarah well let's look at a different kind of species now and that's us humans Philip, we've got a question here for you from Elaine, and she says, how close are we to predicting people's choices they're going to make by looking at what their brains are doing? So in other words, almost mind reading. Short answer is we are still very, very far from it. Uh, long answer, same thing. We are very far from this. The reason is quite simple. Uh, studying decision making is quite a, a recent process, especially in neuroscience. Um, so we've only been looking at it in depth in the last 20, 30, 40 years. So we have an idea of where things are happening, but not what is happening specifically. So let's say the middle of your brain will be evaluating certain components of 
decision choices. So let's say you need to choose between apples and pears. What is the value of apples? What is the value of pears? Then the front of the brain seems to be putting that into context. So the area right over your eyes, which we call the orbital frontal cortex, then something happens under your forehead where choice we think happens and then something happens in the back. But as you can see, we don't really know, unfortunately. It's a really precise art then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, well, that's neuroscience, unfortunately. We, it's still budding. So we think we know where things are happening, but we can't be certain. But more specifically, if I, if I were to sit in a brain scanner and yep. think of certain things, could you, on the basis of the pattern of activity in my brain, when you show me pictures of trucks, know if you looked at my brain later, when I was just randomly thinking about things and say, aha, look, there was definitely a mental image of a truck going by there or he's thinking about a person and a face and so on could you do that so unfortunately um unless you're looking at very very precise conditions we are still not at that level what we can do however is use economics and psychology and there are some reliable biases that we all have on average so let's say i am to promise you three pounds um, you'd be very happy. If I promise you five and give you three, which is the exact same amount, you'd be very upset. It's the same thing, but I can predict how you will feel because of that. Uh, there is also things like probabilities. For some reason, humans seem to overvalue low ones, so that's why we play lottery. That's why we get insurance for some very rare events. So we know we do that kind of stuff, um, and we can predict reliably what people will do, but that's mostly economics and psychology. And what we try to do is see cellularly what is happening and why it happens. That solves that one then. Thank you, Philippe. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we'll be finding out whether face masks for pollution do actually make an iota of difference, why there are so many different types of animal poo, and coming up, it's quiz time. Before that, though, Andrew, we have this rather terrific question for you. Hi there, Naked Scientists. This is Brian from the other London in Canada. Could there be meteorites on Mars that originated on Earth? And if so, could water be ejected from Earth and find its way to Mars? Thanks for taking the time to answer. I think the answer is yes. I mean, there, there could certainly be meteorites from Earth on Mars. And uh, just uh, for people who haven't uh, looked into this before, it is a fact that we have found meteorites that we are pretty confident have come from Mars right here on Earth. And the reason that we think they've come from Mars is because we can study their chemical composition and so on. And we find that they just don't have a chemical composition that's typical of meteorites that are whizzing around in the solar system. Not that the normal meteorites, they have a chemical composition that matches that that we know Mars has. So we are pretty confident that those things have come direct from Mars. And when you look at why, I mean, why would there be chunks of Mars landing here on Earth? You find out essentially that the only sensible explanation for it is collisions of giant comets or something like that with Mars chips off a bit of Mars, which then flies around a bit in the solar system for a few million years and eventually happens to find its way to Earth and it lands. And, and then it's actually very useful because we can start learning stuff, stuff about Mars. And there's absolutely no reason why the reverse process couldn't have happened. The thing to bear in mind, though, especially if you're interested in water, say, is that the quantities of material involved here are absolutely tiny. You know, you are talking about absolutely tiny amounts of stuff. So even if a bit of water found its way from Earth to Mars through that route, uh, it, it's not going to be something that's supporting uh, uh, little green men uh, on Mars somewhere. Well, that's a relief. Sarah Madden. 
Is it possible that life from Earth could get to Mars via the same kind of route for via meteors? It's entirely possible. I think a lot of people are thinking very seriously about uh, where did life come from? Could it originate in space even? Or if it did originate here on Earth, could it then be transferred to other planets through space? And at first, a lot of people were hugely sceptical of this. But it is now known that here on Earth, there are bacteria that we call extremophiles that can survive in incredibly extreme environments. So even though you'd think any living thing that was, uh, you know, chipped off the earth in some giant cataclysmic collision and then uh, flew around in space for a while would surely die actually maybe not maybe life could survive in those environments and could have found its way to mars in exactly that way it's intriguing isn't it thanks andrew sarah we've got a question for you my name is alan from puebla mexico and my question is why when you eat mints It makes your mouth and your throat feel cold. What is the chemical reaction behind it? Please do tell Sarah. (laughs) Such a very good question. Uh, So the reason is that mints contain something called uh, menthol, and I actually have some mints with me here. So basically what happens is that mints contain... So the menthol and the mints hits um, a cold receptor that we have in our mouth. So obviously this receptor would normally be sensitive to temperature. You say cold receptor. Mm -hmm. What's that? It's uh, a protein, so a unit in our mouth. It's actually in the membrane. It's like a channel. And so what happens is uh, sodium and calcium ions can go between it and affect um, this affects. So it's on nerve cells in your your mouth. Yes, it affects nerve cells and then sends signals to our brain. So basically we eat menthol and this attaches to this receptor and this sends a signal to our brain tricking us, making us think that our mouth is cold, whereas in fact it's just the menthol. So you've got cold-sensing nerve fibres in your mouth. Mm -hmm. The opposite, of course, must be the chilli reaction, isn't it? Because um, I love curry Mm -hmm. and I'm very fond of the burn you get with a chilli and that's where things feel artificially a lot hotter. So, yeah, that's actually working by a very similar process. We have a different receptor, which is actually very similar to the mint one. And there's actually a chemical in chilies called capsaicin. And so what happens is, again, that compound hits that receptor, fooling your brain to, into thinking your mouth is on fire. <laughs> um, it certainly and, does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, um, in a way, we were curious as to whether the two could cancel each other out. Because often, you know, you have mint yogurt when you have curry, for example, oh, to try and cool idea. them down. So um, I actually did some research into well, this. Can, can we do the experiments? I noticed yeah. you have got some, you have brought some apparatus with you, which is a bag of menthol mints, and you've also got what on earth is that? Is that a bag of chilies? Um, yes, yeah, so that's right. So. <laughs> okay, I volunteer Philippe. To, no, no, I'm just kidding. We should we should all do in, in, in the interest of, of you know having a good number of research participants. We should all have a go, shouldn't we? I, I'd just like to say, in in the um, interest of science, this would be a bad decision. Just, just saying. <laughs> so, what's the experiment? We're going to try. So they did some. They've done research in humans, um, with, for example, mice, to see if they counteract each other. Because obviously, this is an illusion that's happening in your mouth. It's tricking yeah. your brain. But they did some. They put these uh, chemicals in the rat's milk and to see if they would have less or more if they had. So a mixture of menthol plus chili to yeah, see if the hot if effect would... makes the cold effect go away. Yeah, and, and and actually, it seems that it does. Shall we find so out? So we're going to see if it works <laughs> in us as well. <laughs> right, okay. Did you know that you guys, when you came in, you were going to be doing this? Going to eat? If, um, if she's got a bag of raw. Chili. Chili's here. 
So I'm going like to chili, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, not raw chili. Um, I think uh, I might just uh, hide at this point. Am I allowed to? Am I allowed to hide? There's, there's chunks. There's chunks oh. of whole chili coming <laughs> with, the, with the seeds as well, which I think yeah. are particularly bad. Aren't Have they? I got to do this as well? I, uh, <laughs> if you want to, and then uh, we've got okay. some mints as well that we can pass around. That's the fun part. Yeah. Here comes the mints. They may be necessary. Can we have, have actually one? got yes, giant chunks as well. Yeah, I mean, Do we have to be all I'm not enforcing this is a, the Sarah, entire This is a truck. lot of chilli. Okay, this is a massive... <laughs> we may not be able to speak for the remaining half an hour. So the way it's been proven in this paper, we should, you know, be very scientific. So it's, we have to have the mint first because it's okay. been proven that it right. reduces the cooling right. effect. I'm eating the mint. So we have the mint hang, on a, hang on a second. There's no control sample here. Surely there needs Are you to offering be... to be the control? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. That's I'm observational just trial, out. Andrew. Okay. Just eat your mint. <laughs> Behave. <laughs> right. Okay, we've all chewed the mint. Now We what? should all be noticing our mouth is feeling slightly colder because mm-hmm. of the menthol. Yeah. It tastes nice. These are quite nice. I might get some more of these. Yeah, they're mm. the best for you guys, you know. Mm. Not good for your teeth, though. It's pure <laughs> sugar, I think. So now if we have the chilli, having <clears throat> as much as you can. <laughs> <laughs> this is huge. Am I going to eat all of that? Well, that's extremely hot. I mean, I eat very hot oh, curry. Oh, wow. I eat very hot curry, but I've, I've just eaten the whole thing, and that is quite hot. It's much hotter than I thought it would be. Um, we can see minute. that actually it has <clears throat> reduced the, the coolness, maybe slightly overpowered the coolness. I think that's <laughs> just everyone losing consciousness. So. <laughs> okay. I think we can say it doesn't work on the basis of my personal. Uh, so the not, cold feeling uh, is it's still. It's not working. I, my mouth is burning. No, but it, what it's meant to do is it's meant to reduce the cold effect. It doesn't mean that it's going to get. I did say we didn't have a control sample. We don't know whether it works or not. Now, the other Sarah, Sarah Shales. Now, we've got a question here for you from David, who wants to know, how does a Venus flytrap work? So if you look at the inside of a Venus flytrap, they're actually really, really tiny, kind of short, stiff hairs on on the inside of the leaves. And when an insect uh, lands on the trap and they wander around on the surface of the leaf, um, they actually touch the hairs. um, And this can cause the hairs to bend. And if the insect touches two hairs in sort of quick succession or the same hair twice uh, immediately after the other, then it triggers an electrical signal that runs through the leaf and it actually causes the leaf to snap shut. Where does it get the electricity from? So it's quite similar to how electrical signals work in um, the brain, actually. So you get um, ions moving in um, across the membrane surrounding the cells carrying the electrical signal um, and the differences with plants is that um, they um, don't have neurons um, but um, they, there are connections between the cells um, that allow the electrical signals to just go straight through so that's how it sort of travels along. Andrew? So given that there's, there's sort of clearly a connection to the type of uh, brain activity that we have, have those mechanisms evolved independently or, or are they actually related in terms of their genetic basis as well? Oh that's a really interesting question. So they will have evolved independently, but um, the channels in the membrane that allow the, the ions to move through, um, there can be similarities between them they, and they can work in, very, in quite similar ways, but um, they're kind of genetically different usually, plant ion channels. So given that Venus flytraps are green and they're therefore gathering energy from the sun because they're photosynthesising, mm-hmm. why do they need to fish around in the air for flies to eat when they can just make their food from the sun? The parts of the world that uh, Venus flytraps live in, although they do get some energy from sunlight, they're often in very sort of nutrient-poor areas. So by digesting the insects, they get a whole load of nutrients that they wouldn't also get from sunlight. 
Sarah, thanks very much. Now, Philip, got a question for you. Um, now, Alan says, humans are very smart, but are we really unique in our way of thinking? Ooh, that's, that's a good one. Um, so I would have to say yes and no. Again, sort of a half-half answer. The reason is, yes, humans will be unique in certain ways. Obviously, we have a brain that is quite different to other animals. We have things like language. But if I look at pure economic decision-making in that sense... We have very, very strong similarities with other animals in our lineage, and it can go quite far back, actually. So let's say things like fairness. Monkeys will usually like things like fairness in the same way we do. So let's say you give a grape to a monkey and then a cucumber to another one. Usually the one that gets the cucumber will be very, very upset and would prefer not to have anything and punish the person giving him the cucumber than other things. You don't necessarily see that in rats. But as you go down, you see all of the economic biases that we have sort of slowly trickle down although we still share a lot of things. So rats, pigeons even, will share the effect of framing. So earlier I talked about the three pounds versus five pounds. Well, rats still show that. Pigeons still show that. So yes, we have some unique biases, but other animals share them too. How amazing. Right, let's see how well you guys can think, because it is quiz time. But, um, right, so what we're going to do, we're going to divide you into two teams. So we've got, uh, actually, we have Sarah M and Philippe on team one. And we have Sarah Shales and Andrew Ponson on team two. Now, this theme is very simple. You have to guess which event of the two I give you happened first. It's as simple as that. We'll be taking turns. So we'll start with Andrew and Sarah Shales. And just to clarify, we'll be using the official scientific definition of uh, what came first, as in according to Wikipedia. All right. So, <laughs> right. So I'm going to I'll tell you two things and you have to decide which one came first or not. You ready? You two. OK. Are we allowed to confer? Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, you right. two are on a team okay, together. So, <laughs> absolutely. Right, here we go. Uh, your first one, Giza, so that's the pyramid at Giza, predates the extinction of mammoths. Do you think that's true or false? Uh, I think that's false. Yeah, I suspect it's false too. We're going, we're going for false. Oh. Oh, I'm really sorry. Um, actually, most mammoths went extinct 10,000 years ago. Small groups are thought to have survived until only 4,000 years ago, so there were mammoths roaming around the earth at the same time as the pyramids were being constructed. So it's nul point for Team 1 so far. Mm-mm. Philippe and Sarah, let's see how you get on. You've got everything to play for. The others are doing very well at the moment, and uh, you've got the opportunity to go into the lead. Which happened first, the evolution of the dinosaurs or the evolution of grass? And just to clarify, since we have a drugs person here, that's not cannabis we're talking about. It's grasses and the stuff that grows and we we mow the lawnmower. So, Uh, Well, they had grasses during the dinosaurs. I have seen Jurassic Park. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's a a reliable source to go by, Jurassic Park. Wikipedia, you know, Jurassic Park. Okay, so your answer is you think the grass came first. I would say so. I'm I don't happy. know. Partner, you say yes? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, yeah. here's the answer. Grass didn't turn up until after the first dinosaurs were stomping around, but it did crop up before the dinosaurs went extinct. Right, back to you, uh, Andrew and Sarah. What happened first, the invention of the fax machine or the discovery of Neptune? What do you two think about that? The fax machine or Neptune, oh. which came first? I've only used a fax machine once. <laughs> I don't know how long they've been around. Uh, I I'm going to go for the discovery of Neptune. You're going. You're saying Neptune came first. Yeah. Um, 
Actually, the, the, fax machine, the fax machine actually predates the discovery of Neptune by two years. Neptune cropped up in 1846. The first fax machine as I just it was, was 1843. I don't believe it. You've got, okay. you've, you've got Wikipedia. Look, chairman's it. decision is final. OK, right, zero so far. And you get minus one for complaining. No, I'm just kidding. Right, level pegging on zero still. Let's see if you can improve on this, uh, Philippe and Sarah. Which is older, sliced bread or the wheels on a suitcase? really got some good ones, don't you? I I think s- sliced bread came first. What do you think? Because I would say that. I would say the... Yeah, let's go with Victorians that. Victorians did a lot of travelling, though, didn't they? Didn't you they? made me eat uh, pepper, so I will not <laughs> trust you. Um, I will go with the other one, yes. Going with sliced bread. Yay! You are correct. <laughs> sliced bread dates from 1928. That's over 40 years before... The patent for the first wheeled suitcase. Oh, very well done. OK, back to Sarah and Andrew. Which is older, Cambridge University or the Aztec Empire? Well, Cambridge what? is, what, over 800 years old. How old are the Aztecs? Surely older than that. Surely. Oh, I don't know, because when, they, when the Spanish went over to South America, they were still there, right? And that wasn't Aztecs, maybe... Uh, I, that's what I would have assumed. But, okay, you're uh, going Aztecs, is that right? You're no, going because for... we're going to go for the opposite of what we think okay, would be the... Uh, so we'll go for Cambridge University. Hooray! Yay! Cambridge <laughs> University was founded in 1209, which is over 200 years before the rise of the Aztecs. Very good. It's very even Stevens here today. Both teams on one point. Right, this is it. This is the decider. Okay. So, Sarah and Philippe, which is older, the theory of plate tectonics or special relativity? Ooh. I read something about plate tectonics recently. <laughs> Other than the title, I couldn't tell you what yeah, it is. So <laughs> it was a useful read then. Yeah, it was a very useful one. Uh, I, I would assume <clears throat> special relativity. What would you... I would go with plates. I, just because I would oh. assume special relativity. Okay, do you want to go with that then? Yeah. Are you okay with that one? Yeah, I'm okay. Perfect. I'm really sorry Uh, actually special relativity in 1905 was proposed 10 years before the theory of continental drift and it was accepted 40 years earlier so actually you both go home even Stevens don't you because Mm. um, you've both got one point (laughs) very well done okay sorry I would have had the right answer to that one I did actually know the answer to that one so could we have an extra half a point and win I'll think about it Why do bees make hexagonal honeycombs? And what gives each snowflake its unique shape? The answer is that nature does that through the laws of physics. And in his new book, Forces of Nature, Brian Cox explains how. Based on the acclaimed BBC TV series of the same name, this new paperback release is a beautiful exploration of our planet and it provides the deepest answers to some of the simplest questions. Forces of Nature is on sale now. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Today, I'm joined by a panel of experts who are ready to take on your science questions. We have with us cosmologist Andrew Ponson, plant scientist Sarah Shales, biochemist Sarah Madden and neuroeconomist Philippe Bougeot. If you'd like to ask us a question for our next Q&A show, though, then do get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can find us on Facebook. Right, Sarah, we have this question for you and it's a stinky one. This is John Gamble in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a great fan. I never miss a show. I grew up in the in the deep south around all kinds of 
herbivores, you know, like sheep and horses and and rabbits and you name it. And I was intrigued by the fact that their droppings all looked different, each and every one. And I wonder quite why that was, uh, what, what was going on? What was the biology behind that? Look forward to hearing, oh, especially the cow pies. I'd love to know about that. <laughs> Sarah, you're now a pooologist. What, what do you think? <laughs> so it, it depends on several things, really. So firstly, it depends on what the herbivores are eating. So there are a wide variety of herbivores that are all eating different things. So fruit and seeds, for example, the nutrients are often easier to access than if you're eating leaves or stems. So the animal doesn't have to do so much digesting, so that will affect what the poo looks like at the end. Also, some plants are tougher to digest than others because they've got more fibre in them, um, and so you'll probably land up with more plant material at the other end. But there's also chemicals inside inside some plants that will affect things as well. So, uh, for example, apricots and prunes contain natural laxatives, so um, if, you've got, if your herbivore is eating lots of those, that might make the poo a bit runnier. But the other thing that affects it as well is the gut. So herbivores... And like all animals, have bacteria in the gut that helps them to digest food. And there's a wide variety of different bacteria that help animals to digest food. That will also have an impact as well. And John specifically refers to and wants special treatment of cow pats. What can you say about those? Yeah, so cows are a herbivore called a ruminant, so like sheep as well. The the way their guts are organised, they have a kind of extra chamber in their stomach called the rumen, um, and that's where they particularly house that bacteria. As to why cow pats look so different to sheep droppings, I'm not entirely sure. One vet put it to me once that uh, people think cows eat grass, but this is not true. Cows don't eat grass. Cows actually live on a soup of bacteria because they eat grass to feed the bacteria in their guts and the guts grow those bacteria which the cow then digests. And it's all very liquid and runny, isn't it? Now, um, question for you, Sarah M. Um, Tracy says, I've often seen people wearing face masks to deal with pollution. Do they actually do anything? Well, so that's a really good question. And actually, it's become more relevant as um, pollution in places like London has actually become quite bad recently. And um, there's ten over 10,000 deaths in London, just in London, the UK every year. So this kind of question becomes like more and more relevant to us. So actually, it's kind of yes and no. So those face masks that you often see people having in Beijing, the kind of surgeon's mask, they actually do pretty much nothing. <laughs> so they aren't airtight, so pretty much they'll let anything in and there's not really any point in using them. Um, but one of the things, there's often, there's more advanced types of masks, the kind of almost like gas masks that you're kind of used to seeing for like people in... They're fit-tested masks, Yeah, they? that kind they of They do thing. form a proper seal around um, your mouth. So they, they do stop particles getting in, but um, often they kind of struggle. You can still breathe in the gases and that can be a problem because nitrogen dioxide is one of the really harmful things that in, in the polluted cities causes your lungs to become inflamed and can cause you to develop bronchitis and that's actually much harder to obviously block getting in rather than these like fine particles that you'd get. So as somebody who works in London next to one of the busiest most polluted streets there is and it really is really bad is there anything that I can do that would help? One of the best things you could do is almost to choose less congested routes. So if you're a cyclist, go around the back streets if that's possible. Because, I mean, I think when you have these masks, it can be almost, as I say, quite hard to breathe. So it's just not good for cycling. We did make a programme on this last year, Andrew. And in fact, we found, we actually sent 
one of our team to London to wander around various places, wearing a set of sensors that were developed here in Cambridge and also at King's College in London to do ambulatory air quality monitoring. And the worst place in London we found was to get in a taxi because you're in the thick of the traffic and all of the fumes are being pulled in from the car in front straight into the taxi and they can't blow away because you're in this sealed glass container. Best thing actually is to go down by the river, so take a stroll at lunchtime down by the Thames and it's less polluted there we found. And actually there is even a difference between walking along the curbside next to the road and if you move as far from the road edge as you can. So the advice would be avoid London, avoid getting in a cab in London and go for a walk by the Thames if you want to. Sarah? Um, I was just wondering whether any of those masks have any effect on, say, microbes, so like bacteria or viruses or something, because that's what a lot of people often wear those sort of masks for when they're on the tube or things like that. That's a really good question. So obviously microbes kind of, they sit in between, in terms of size, between a particle of dust or that you'd get from from a car and a gas molecule, so somewhere in between. I guess it would be borderline between whether they could stop that. Yeah. In the point. hospital, we don't think they work. Um, you know, when we use them for infection control, because you often say, let's put a person who's got an infection, let's put one of those on them. And um, as far as we know, as soon as they get wet because of breath dampening the material, the bugs can go straight through. And also, as you said, Sarah, they're not sealed around the edges so Mm -hmm. that you just blow them all out the sides. And also, when people wear them to protect themselves, they don't protect their eyes. And your eyes are connected to your nose. So all the bugs that land on your eyes get washed into your nose and infect you via that route. So actually, better off just stay at home. Become a hermit. (laughs) That's the the best solution. Andrew, here's one for you. Paul would like to know, could the Big Bang be in an infinite repeating cycle? And can you just explain what that question means for us? Well, the idea of the Big Bang is that somehow if you rewind the history of our universe, and we're getting pretty good at doing this by piecing together all the evidence, if you rewind it um, maybe 13.8 billion years into the past, then our universe was essentially infinitely dense or, you know, incredibly dense. uh, And uh, the universe was sort of born out of that primordial state. And I think what the question is getting at is, well, what sets that up? How does how does something appear out of nothing that's infinitely dense? Uh, what what creates that? And of course, that's a kind of question that's been around forever. I think ever since humans first started asking any sort of philosophical question, the question of was there a single moment of creation or did somehow the, the world that we know emerge from something else? Um, and the, the honest answer is we don't know. We still don't really know the answer to that question. What kicked off the Big Bang? We just don't know. We do have some ideas. There are things like uh, this idea called inflation, which kind of replaces the, the normal Big Bang picture with something slightly different where the universe expands in a really weird way in its first tiny fraction of a second. And in that picture, it might well be quite natural to imagine that that space and time have just existed forever, that there was no beginning to time. And universes just kind of pop up within this bigger environment uh, that we sometimes call a multiverse. And so in a sense, that there are theories that we are trying to put to the test, where time could have been around forever, and there could be this kind of idea of a repeating cycle. That boggles your mind, doesn't it? But you're not going to give us an answer. So we have to say the best I can do is to say 
well, come back another time and we'll do some more experiments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going, going right back to something we discussed at the start of the programme, you know, we can actually see light coming pretty much from the Big Bang itself. So we do live at a special time when we can actually tackle these questions scientifically rather than just speculate about them. At the moment, what I just said is speculation, but we do have ways that we're trying to test it. It's a great time to be alive, isn't it? Now, Philip Vernon wants to know, why are we so obsessed with new technology and having to have the next big thing? So I think that question applies to actually a lot more than new technologies. It's always, what is the next big thing? What's the new thing I can get? And that has, I would say, two main causes. Uh, The first one, dopamine, which is a very uh, in-fashion word at the moment. Uh, So dopamine seems in the brain to be coding things that would be considered a surprise. So be it a really good reward or a really bad reward or something novel to you. And usually you will seek what initiates that dopamine signal. So when dopamine is released, you just want more of that. So you will keep seeking that. But at one point, it stops being novel. It becomes your reference if you want. So dopamine stops firing that extra little boost. And so you want something more. There's also another reason to this. Uh, We are social animals. And unfortunately, we want to be like all the others. So when there's iPhones everywhere, well, everybody wants iPhones. When everybody wants Androids, everybody wants Androids. So you always want novelty, but you also always want what others have because you want to fit in. We are a social animal. And people who do buck the trend, what's going on with them then? Are they doing that just because that's their way of getting novelty, because they're being different? Uh, So that really depends. Um, I guess the easy answer to that is that obviously everybody has genetic and environmental factors that will affect how they think. Um, Some people will go against the trend, some people will go with it. Evolutionarily, it makes sense that some people will go against the trend, hoping maybe to establish a new trend and being the first people there. So there's some reasons why people would do it. But on average, we do like to follow those trends. Sarah, quick one to sneak in from Hong for you. Hi, Naked Scientist. This is Hong calling from Melbourne, Australia. So I was eating my peanut butter jelly sandwich the other day. Uh, We call it peanut butter and jam sandwich in Australia. I was wondering, they use plant-based products like corn and peanuts to make vegetable oil. And, uh, you know, it got me thinking, why do plants even make oil? Is it to keep warm like mammals? Um, Well, thanks for answering my question and keep up the great work. Uh, One of the main reasons they do it is to store energy. So like us, they use fats to store energy. So um, oils contain fats called triglycerides and they contain building blocks called fatty acids. And so uh, they're found uh, particularly in seeds, for example. Uh, So the plants we use to commercially produce oils are particularly rich. Their seeds are particularly rich in in oil. So peanuts, sunflower seeds, oilseed rape, that kind of thing. But the Fatty acids can also be incorporated into other molecules called phospholipids and these are found in the membrane surrounding plant cells. So the fatty acids there have a big kind of role in controlling how fluid the membrane is and that's really important for plant cells to work and all cells in fact to work. So um, they also have a role when the temperature changes in making sure that plant cells still function. There's a lot to it, isn't there? I hadn't realised how complicated it was. The other Sarah, Heather, would like to know why do some recreational drugs change the sizes of your pupils and your eyes? So our pupils um, 
They're their size are controlled by the muscles in our iris. That's the coloured bit. That's the coloured bit, yeah, that's right. And there's two types. There's one which is kind of a bit like the spokes of a bicycle, which causes your um, pupil to dilate, get bigger. And then there's one which is called a sphincter, a bit like the muscle in your bum, uh, which causes it to get smaller. There's a a thought, isn't it? Relating your eyes to your bum. And so what can happen is it actually can happen with different ways for different drugs. So when you have um, ecstasy, this actually makes you very happy, uh, which means it kind of causes the release of a hormone called serotonin. And this binds to, again, a word that I'm using a lot today, a receptor in your brain. And this um, carries on and causes your eyes to dilate, your pupils to dilate, get bigger. Philip? Actually, adding onto that, uh, eyes also, when you want to make a choice, if let's say you really want that apple and you don't want that pear, your eyes will dilate more when you're looking at the apple. And it's the same thing when you're trying to choose a mate. Uh, If you can see that, when you are aroused, your pupils are actually dilated. So look for that when you go on a date, guys. Sarah? Um, and that's a really good point. They've actually started, scientists have started to wonder if they can read our minds through this prefrontal dilation. So actually, they did one experiment recently where they put a button in front of the participants and asked them to push it in a 10-second interval. And they found that they could predict when the participants were going to press it because their pupils dilated ex- like about one second before. And that was the motivation. Yeah, exactly. And they don't, so they obviously can hypothesise of what's going on, but you know, who knows what will happen in the future. Thank you very much. Well, just very quickly, Vinny wondered when we were eating chilli earlier whether the burning sensation is confined just to the mouth or elsewhere in the body. And the answer, Vinny, is that as anyone who has had a hot curry knows, it is not confined purely to the mouth area. And the reason is that the nerves that sense the burning capsaicin in chilli peppers, they are present in your mouth and the other place where you have surface epithelium, your skin, and that's your bum. And so you do feel it on the way in and on the way out. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And we've got an all-star cast of scientists with us here today who are answering your science questions. Andrew Ponson is a physicist. Sarah Shales is taking on plants. Philippe Bougeot is an animal behaviourist and neuroeconomist. And Sarah Madden knows her biochemistry and medicine. And if you'd like to send us a question in for shows like this, you can send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Now, Andrew, we've got this one that's coming from Stan for you. Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Stan Rivelis calling from Taos, New Mexico. The latest estimate of the age of the universe is about 13.8 billion years. But would the age of the universe be different if the observer were situated on a planet near the outer edge of the universe, traveling at speeds far greater than we are? Shouldn't that observation show the universe is younger? And if so, how much younger? If, on the other hand, the observation is absolute from our perspective, why can relativity considerations be ignored? And give my regards to Clare College, where I was an undergraduate many years ago. That's actually quite a deep question, isn't it? It's saying if we're in different places in the universe, is the, is the age of the universe that we register different? It, it is a deep question, and the brief answer is no. We're pretty sure that wherever we were in the universe, we would measure the age as being the same. But uh, as the question is, is saying, why, why should that be? We do know that the universe is kind of whizzing apart in some sense. And we also know that Einstein's special relativity tells us that if something is moving fast it experiences time very differently. And in particular, you might well expect that it would experience much less time because it's moving fast. And the way that you reconcile this is to apply not 
Einstein's special relativity, but Einstein's general relativity to the problem. And general relativity was this kind of breakthrough in physics, which combined the theory of special relativity, which came considerably earlier, with the problem of gravity. What is this mysterious force that seems to keep us uh, glued to the Earth's surface and keeps the planets moving around and the stars moving moving around within a galaxy? Um, And the older theories of gravity, which were Newton's theory, just couldn't really be reconciled with Einstein's special relativity, which had all these weird effects about clocks running at different rates for uh, things moving at different speeds. So general relativity was this theory that brought together gravity and special relativity. And it means that once gravity becomes important, if you start thinking about situations where gravity is actually, you know, the most important force, and that would certainly include the expansion of the universe, then you can no longer apply the laws of special relativity. And actually, if you correctly apply the laws of general relativity, you do get the correct answer that despite everything flying apart, Everyone measures the same time having passed. Thank you, Andrew. Now, Philippe, one for you. Sarah says, another Sarah, but not in this panel in here. She says, how do companies or advertisers use neuroscience to convince someone to hand over their cash? Yes, so that's usually uh, the consideration that people want to look at. And it does make sense. Uh, There's a few things that people use. And it's not always just about neuroscience. It's just certain psychological biases that we have. For example, sales. People could give you the exact same price, say it's on sale, and you would still prefer it to the same object, not on sale. Uh, There's also things like choices. We think more choices is better, but usually more choices is not. Uh, It's going to confer biases to specific options. It's going to allow less of your neurons to apply themselves to one specific decisions and evaluate every possibility. So there's a few different things like that that advertising uh, and companies can do. But the reverse end of that is that there's a lot of good things we can also do with these biases. So, for example, let's say climate change. People can look at these things and try to influence people's behavior and decisions with it. So we are very susceptible to social pressures and social engagement. If you send someone a bill that says what the average energy consumption of a household is for their little neighborhood or area, people are usually a lot more conscious of their choices and decisions than if you don't. So there's things like that. Or also, I'm sure people, at least in Cambridge and London, probably a few different places also where you put eyes on ads saying don't steal things. People are very conscious about eyes. So people will steal less if there's eyes. Yep, it works. And it works in pretty much every situation. Goodness. And do you find going shopping a tricky experience because um, you must see all this, this sort of neuro marketing going on and think, I'm being duped, I'm being duped, I'm being duped. It just makes you really suspicious. You don't want to buy anything. Uh, so I actually went shopping today and I have to say I felt great. a new shirt? That, I was going to say it's quite a good shirt, that oh, one. Thank you. Is that, thank is that you. today's purchase? Uh, it was on sale, actually. Uh, it, it was? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, no, so uh, obviously humans are humans. Um, even though I know about certain biases we might have, I still fall prey to them all the time. And I think everybody in my field does the same thing. And that's why we're so interested in it, because we know we're going to make the same mistakes over and over and over. But why do they happen? Now, um, question for you, Sarah. Nick wants to know, I've heard that oranges and lemons have the same smell-causing chemical in them called limonene, but they don't smell the same. Why is that? Yeah, so that's right. They have the same chemical in them, limonene. 
And it's a, it is truly the same chemical. It's made up of the same atoms. It has the same bonds. But the difference is, is the two versions that you find in oranges and lemons are actually the mirror image of each other. And the way to think about this is like to compare it to our hands. So if we look at our hands, we have two hands and they are the same, but not. They are mirror images of each other. So what happens is that these two same but different chemicals interact with our nose differently. Again, we have receptors in our nose. And because these compounds aren't exactly the same, it interacts differently with our receptors and we can smell the difference. Right, OK. So you've got the same molecule, except that it's almost like I've shone it in a mirror and I'm looking at the mirror image molecule. And oranges have one form, lemons have the other. But when they go up your nose because they are a bit like a right hand and a left hand, when they try and go in the receptor in your nose, because that's like a right hand going into a right-handed glove, you can't put a left hand in a right-handed glove, at least not easily. Therefore, you smell one as one kind of smell because it's registering with one group of receptors and one as a different smell because it's registering with a totally different group of receptors. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's strange how such a kind of almost small difference can have such a big effect on the body. And in the drugs industry... This must be important because if you can make the same molecule and a chemist would tell you, yeah, I've made chemical A, but I could have chemical A or chemical B, which is its mirror image, only one of those two forms might work in the body to to kill cancer or do a job. Yeah, that's really true. Um, So often we have them as a mixture because it's just basically as a chemist, I know, it's so much easier and therefore hence so much cheaper to make it as a mixture of the two uh, mirror images. But this actually can have effects in that you have a lot more side effects sometimes when you have the mixture. So you often find the really expensive medicine is the pure one form of the mirror image. Wonderful. Sarah, thanks very much. Uh, Andrew, this has come in from David who says... If the sun was to disappear instantly, would the gravitational effect of the Earth be instant? In other words, the effect of gravity being faster than the speed of light... This is a beautiful question, which I thought about for many years, actually, before figuring out what the answer is. Because in Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, um, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That's one of the kind of key components that goes into the theory before you even start. But... If you actually start analysing the equations quite carefully, they also have to agree with Newton's theory of gravity pretty accurately. You know, it has to be the case that since Newton's theory of gravity works so well for describing things like the solar system and so on, that it must be pretty much correct. And certainly in Newton's theory of gravity, if the sun were to disappear then uh, instantaneously we'd be flung out of orbit because there would be no gravitational tug keeping the Earth in orbit around where the Sun used to be. Um, and so it is a bit strange. Where, where, How does this get reconciled in Einstein's general relativity where nothing should travel faster than the speed of light, not even gravity itself? And the answer is actually a bit of a disappointing one. It's that Einstein's theory of gravity doesn't even answer that question. It just refuses to answer the question because it has built into it at its centre an idea that energy can't just be destroyed and neither can mass. So you can't take something like the sun and say, oh, it's disappeared, what happens next? The theory actually says, no, that is just not allowed. So if you try to make a calculation of what happens next, you'll get all sorts of contradictory answers and things happening. Thank you, Andrew. 
back down here on Earth, Philip, I have this very simple one. I, I think it sounds simple, but it probably has a deep answer. Um, this person says, why do I find it so hard to save money? Are there any psychology tips and tricks that I can use to avoid spending money unnecessarily? So actually, yes, the answer is quite simple. Um, there is a very unique psychological concept that I like to use a lot in my daily life, and that's friction. Um, anything that is harder to do, usually we will associate that with the cost and we will not do it. So, so more, you, more Velcro on your wallet. Yeah, stuff like that, obviously. <laughs> but um, also, if you have a bank account that directly takes money for your savings, taking that money out of your savings is just that tiny bit of effort that you might not want to do. Things like that, having... That's why pension plans, let's say, have money that goes in automatically because people have that friction to take it out. So that's a really good way of doing it or simply applying yourself in advance. So let's say making sure and finding a means to promise to yourself that you will do it. So if you lock the money away completely, you can't touch it. That's a very good way of doing it. Uh, but yeah, friction is probably the best way at the moment. And there, I'm afraid, we really must leave it. Thank you to our guests, Andrew Ponson, Sarah Shales, Philippe Bougeau, and also Sarah Madden. The producer was Georgia Mills. Next week's show is in development, literally, because we'll be finding out how a single fertilised egg ultimately turns into 37 trillion cells that give each of the organs in the body their unique properties. And understanding that process of development means we'll be able to put organs right in future. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, it's goodbye from me and us all here at The Naked Scientist. Goodbye. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.